Brand new Sojourn Pod Week. It's Meredith Monday. Well, hey, welcome to Meredith Monday and a brand new week. And uh, I'll warn you up front, I've got some particularly nerdy things going on in my head right now. And I might just uh, solo run these three episodes um, just to think a little bit more about something that um, I might well go back and talk to uh, Chris on the next time he's on the show. But um, something that I think is is pretty striking in Meredith Klein's theology, um, and that is his eschatology in the book of Genesis and his uh, the way that he shows the place of eschatology throughout uh, biblical theology. One of the first points that that happens is in um, Genesis. Well, actually, you know, not the first point, technically speaking, but one of the most um, amazing sort of uh, paradigm-shaking moments I remember having experienced in in reading Klein was uh, the way he dealt with Genesis uh, chapter three. And uh, really, verse 7, I think, is the big one, verse 7 and 8. Just to get you up to speed on that, um, the whole thing with uh, Genesis chapter 3, of course, is that the fall had already taken place. Um, Adam and Eve had broken their covenant relationship with God, and as a result of that, they were naked and ashamed. Um, there's a whole big thing we could talk about on that. I might leave that for a for a technical Tuesday. What does it mean that they were naked and ashamed? Again, Klein, I think, has a lot to say about that. Um, and it is uh, amazing stuff. Um, but essentially, they were stripped of that thing that they were at one point vested with, uh, that, that righteousness, essentially. And uh, like I say, leaving aside the details for now, uh, at this point, you know, after having fallen, Adam and Eve were now um, really before the the, the pure uh, righteousness of God and His law and the covenant, without anything to screen themselves, so to speak. So that's they, they want to cover themselves; they want to hide away. That context is important, um, especially as we consider what will happen later on. Uh, Israel. Uh, most most who know anything about uh, Meredith Klein's theology or just covenant theology in general um, will we'll know that Israel later is this giant echo of Adam and Israel's failure really echoes Adam's failure to obey God. And and so, of course, we see the, the prophetic announcement come that the day of judgment awaited them and uh, we see that a prophetic type of that or at least a typological reality of that judgment in... Um, they're being carried on to Babylon, uh, carried off to Babylon and um, the captivity and all sorts of things there. But the prophets come as these covenant prosecutors. They bring the lawsuit against Israel. And um, we think of a few different instances where where they the, the prophetic carry on there is that they, it shows that Israel is really going to be a type of, of all men that have failed in Adam and uh, and so must face the day of the Lord. Uh, I think of Hosea six verse seven, for example. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So it's this this important bit of biblical theology that happens in in the long haul that we see Adam gets echoed by Israel. Israel becomes an object lesson for really everyone in Adam, and and so it goes. Now all of that is a backstory for Genesis. 
3 verse 8, um, where we see this interesting thing happen in the way that that, that most translations uh, bring it out. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So you get the impression from that that, you know, God was sort of um, taking his daily stroll in the cool part of the day. And if anything was odd, it was that, you know, he didn't know where his walking buddy was. You know, it's just a very odd picture in many, many different ways. I mean, this great treasonous act is, has broken out in creation and, you know, the, the fall has taken place and it seems that God is none the wiser, you know, just in, in, the terms of, in terms of the way that this thing is portrayed which I would ultimately argue is incorrect. Klein argues is incorrect. And I think he does this very, very forcefully. Uh, The word translated in the ESV, uh, at least, as sound, sometimes voice, uh, it's rendered, but mostly uh, translations would would speak of of this uh, Hebrew word kol uh, as sound. Uh, It can mean voice, but uh, it's generally agreed that, you know, a voice is not necessarily in view. So the sound of the Lord... Uh, is heard, um, and, and that sort of it gives, it gives the impression that the sound of the Lord walking, right, just as someone rush, rustling through the bushes or whatever it is. Um, but if you look at the way that that word is uh, the kol adonai, the the word, uh, the expression is used in in the Hebrew all the way throughout the Bible. You see that it's. Um, it really is quite a dramatic thing every single time. Uh, one of the clear examples that come to mind for me is in Exodus 19, uh, where you have the Lord appearing on the mountain. We know the story where, you know, at Sinai and uh, Israel comes before the Lord and the Lord appears with a trumpet, trumpet blast, the sound of the Lord there again. Uh, and, you know, you obviously, at that point, the drama of the event is, is right in front of you. Um, it's clearly a terrifying event. The whole mountain was shaking with fire and smoke was ascending from its top. And, um, and, and significantly, though, people have heard at that point the, the kol Adonai, this, the sound of the Lord, the same thing that Adam and Eve heard in Genesis. <clears throat> and uh, the moment, of course, is highlighted by Moses himself. You know, when Moses talks about this, he says, um, this is in Deuteronomy, when he, when he refers back to the event and he's recounting the covenant before the people. He says, and you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice call." The sound of the Lord. Same thing as in Genesis 3 verse 8. Um, now, there's so much we could say about this. I mean, later on in the biblical story, of course, one of the big theophanies that is dealt with, biblically speaking, is by Ezekiel. Um, I've just got this passage open here for us. Um, uh, Ezekiel 124. And you can check it out at some point. But, um, you know, describing the Lord in this this language, this grasping its symbols and all sorts of things. Um, when they, the cherubim he's talking about there, went, uh, I heard the the sound of their wings, this coal again, like the coal of many waters, the sound of many waters, like the coal of the Almighty, the coal of the uh, of tumult, like the sound, like the coal of an army, the sound of an army. 
Um, and later on, he says, uh, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. That uh, And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard the sound, the call of one speaking. So you just, uh, it's just all over the place in, in, in terms of theophany. Again, a fairly terrifying, majestic experience, uh, no doubt. Um, Isaiah would speak of the call of the Lord. I mean, well, <clears throat> there's so much more we could say of the Jeremiah. Um, the Lord will roar from on high and from his holy habitation utter his voice call he will roar mightily notice the sound again against his fold and shout like those who trade grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth um <clears throat> the psalms are full of this idea in fact psalm 29 is just replete it's a it's really a psalm dedicated to the call of the lord the call i don't know it says the voice of the lord is over the waters the god of glory thunders the lord over many waters the voice of the lord the call of the lord is is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Uh, once again later, uh, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. So like like Sinai, like Genesis 3, 8, uh, and the story just after Adam and Eve had sinned. Now again, <laughs> if you're thinking about that in relationship to what you read in Genesis, you've got a very different picture to the Lord taking a casual stroll in the garden uh, you know, in the cool of the day, you've got something far more eschatological, dare I say, apocalyptic even. Um, and so, you know, maybe it's worth just fleshing out a little bit more um, how this idea even goes into the New Testament, you know, because often often this is uh, not, not thought of, but uh, like in Matthew 24, Jesus is recorded to have told his disciples that he would send his angels, or the Lord would send the angels, with the sound of a trumpet to gather the elect. The sound of the trumpet is essentially the same sound as Kol Adonai, this apocalyptic reality. Um, another instance here is in Second Peter 3 verse 10, the arrival of the day of God, right, is, um, is announced by a great noise, Peter says. So, You've got a lot of biblical data, and I've just skimmed through this now. Um, but honestly, you know, it really, what you're hearing, what, what, at least um, what, what you're meant to be understanding or appreciating, and this is what Klein brings out so well, and he challenges the translation um, that follows. He says, listen, if that is the case, then uh, we really need to rethink the way we've translated this thing because we're not... We're not giving the appropriate biblical picture. This is not just the sound of the Lord as in the, you know, the sound of footsteps or anything like that. This is the sound of something apocalyptic. This is the end of the world. Uh, I'll never forget when Chris um, Kahi, uh, the guy who's usually on Meredith Monday, he'll probably be back on with me next week. But he, uh, you know, he was down in New Zealand. In fact, he's just posted those New Zealand talks on his uh, Glory Cloud uh, podcast. So go check those out if you wanted to see that. But I'll never forget one of the most powerful moments of the conference is is when he brought up the scripture and he's like, "Okay, we're on Genesis three, and that was the end of the world." That's really the. It's a great way to say it. I mean, that's exactly the way we ought to think of 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 what is being conveyed then. Now, from that stems a lot of translation stuff and maybe stuff better uh, reserved for Technical Tuesday. But there's something. For you to think about, uh, something that's in the writing of Meredith Klein, uh, you can go check it out at Kingdom Prologue. I think he does deal with it in, um, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he deals with it in uh, Images of the Spirit as well. 
and uh, maybe even God, Heaven, and Armageddon. I'm pretty sure he deals with it there as well uh, at, at some uh, in, at some level of depth anyway. Um, so, you know, if you did want to know more or have more detail there, go and check out Client's uh, works or, um, you know, we'll fill you out in, in podcasts to come. But um, that's just another, another, hopefully another little nugget that gets you thinking about the, the place of eschatology uh, right in the beginning, right in from Genesis. Uh, the whole Bible had the end in mind, and it's always been about this glorious ending. And um, and you could even talk more about that. I mean, that that again, we'll we'll reserve for a later stage the relationship of protology and eschatology. But um, hopefully, that's enough to just get you reading that that passage over with some fresh perspective and appreciation, and uh, and realizing immediately then the grace that God had given to Adam and Eve. I mean, this is the end of the world, terrifying judgment, and God uh, stops that day in forbearance and mercy, allows both a, a common grace to, to preserve mankind and, and promises uh, that a Savior would come who would crush the serpent and, uh, and bring Adam and Eve into a place of redemption, uh, in, into a place uh, like Eden or better. And so I'll leave it at that today. I hope that gives you something to think about and blesses you as you read your Bible. Uh, otherwise, have a great week. We'll talk tomorrow. Thank you.